Hello, everyone. It's delightful to see you in what is unfortunately a trademark Princeton weather occasionally. It is my enormous pleasure uh, to introduce George Schultz. I found myself thinking, how do you introduce not only a former Secretary of State, but a former Secretary of Labor, a former Secretary of the Treasury, Treasurer, and the head of the Office of Management uh, <laughs> and Budget. I guess you introduce him by speaking into the microphone. <laughs> so that's what all of you know already uh, about our distinguished speaker. For those of you uh, in the audience uh, who are from the Woodrow Wilson School, uh, I think there are, and I, from the larger Princeton audience, there's, there are two other ways uh, to introduce him. One is uh, that he embodies in many ways uh, the highest ideals of Princeton in the nation's service and in the service of all nations. More directly, when I first became dean, I went around the Woodrow Wilson School uh, asking people to fill in the following blank, that uh, in law school we teach you to think like a lawyer, it, in medical school we teach you to think like a do doctor, in the Woodrow Wilson School we teach you to think like a X. Well, some of the remarks I got were think like a bureaucrat. This was not, <laughs> not the right answer <laughs> from my point of view. Um, I also got uh, the scholar advisor. The best answer to that question I got, I think George Schultz embodies, which is to think like a scholar statesperson, in his case, a scholar statesman. Uh, and he does embody uh, that notion uh, at its various highest, obviously as a statesman uh, representing uh, the United States as Secretary of State, but also uh, as a very distinguished scholar. Another way to think about this from the Woodrow Wilson point of view is this is the perfect merger of Fields 3 and Fields 1. For those of you who don't know, Field 3 is our domestic policy uh, field, and Field 1 uh, is our international relations field, and Field 2 is development that bridges both. But there is constant, as, since I'm an internationalist, I talk about the international side, and I constantly get, well, wait a minute, what about the domestic side? And I uh, have pointed uh, to very distinguished graduates like George Schultz to say, look, you can be uh, at the very top of your field on the domestic side, in labor, in the treasury, uh, and also move uh, to the international side. This is, this is, these are uh, all part uh, of a policy education and career. The final thing I want to highlight that I think is particularly relevant uh, for this audience is that George Schultz has had a career that has moved not only in and out of government, but from the academic sector to the private sector, to the government sector, and back around. And that is, I think, uh, a very rare accomplishment. We have examples of academics who move into government and move back out. 
We also have examples of those in the private sector, most notably if you think of Bob Rubin, a more recent uh, Secretary of the Treasury, who move in and then go back. It is very rare to have someone who combines all three, who is a very distinguished uh, academic, who served his country at the very highest levels, and who has also served uh, at, at, at Bechtel in private enterprise, also again at, at very high levels. So the only thing I have to say that is uh, that I find a problem with our speaker uh, this, uh, this afternoon uh, is that although, of course, he is one of Princeton's most distinguished graduates, he chose to major in economics uh, rather than the Woodrow Wilson School, but he is, of course, uh, a, a – he uh, now his name uh, graces our, our dining room, and we count him as one of our most distinguished graduates. Uh, he's received many, many honorary degrees, so I think we can, can uh, include that as well. So it is my pleasure uh, to give you uh, George P. Schultz, who is going to talk on reflections. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. When the dean asked me to talk, it was quite a while ago, and I knew you would want me to talk about what's taking place, but since I didn't know two or three months ago what would be taking place, I put down reflections. And that would cover the first few minutes of my talk, which will be my reflections about uh, what happened to me at Princeton that had an impact on my life. And I must say, uh, that when I was dean at Chicago and got along in years, I was reminded of that uh, saying, taking off from General MacArthur, old deans never die, they just lose their faculties. <laughs> now, I, in that spirit, I have to correct you. I did major in what was in, not, nobody heard of the Woodrow Wilson School in those days, it was called the School of Public and International Affairs. It morphed into the Woodrow Wilson School. But I majored in economics, and I had this, uh, I don't know what it was called, minor or something, and I got a lot out of it because it was a first experience, in a sense, of taking the discipline that I liked and applying those ideas to issues of public policy, and in those days, you had sort of conferences on topics. I don't know whether you still do that or not, uh, 60 years or so ago. And one each semester was a domestic topic of some kind, and one was international. And I remember in my senior year, the international topic had to do in some measure with the Far East. And right after graduation, I found myself in the Marine Corps immediately out in the Pacific, and I thought, well, there's a certain relevance to this. At least I have some <laughs> idea why I'm here. Uh, so I'm, I really am uh, grateful for that uh, exposure at the School of Public and International Affairs uh, to this first effort to apply the ideas of economics to issues of public policy. But I would say, reflecting on my experience as an undergraduate at Princeton, 
I had the habit of learning kind of instilled in me. It's part of the culture. I learned about a lot about friendship. You might have seen three guys sitting here a few minutes ago. Well, two of my old friends from my class at Princeton have shown up here for this lecture. So there's a friendship that develops at Princeton and a spirit about it. And uh, friendship is a wonderful thing, and it's part of the atmosphere of Princeton. You learn about standards of performance. And I think the atmosphere of the honor system says to you, it's not just what you learn in your head. It's what you learn in your gut that matters. And you learn from the operation of the honor system something about behavior. And I've always felt that at Princeton, one of the most important features is athletics. And whether you competed at the varsity level or in some other fashion, I did a lot of athletics at Princeton. And I felt, aside from what it taught me about how to deal with, as a blocking back, with tackles that were all knees and elbows, it taught me a lot about accountability. You're accountable to yourself to be in good condition and to be able to play the 60 minutes that people used to play in those days, uh, or the top people did. Uh, it taught you accountability to your teammates. You learned if you're going to be part of a group, you have a responsibility and you're accountable. And athletics gets that into you, gets it into your gut. And so that kind of learning, it always seemed to me, was very important. I learned a lot about data. And I love the fact that at Princeton, in order to graduate, you have to do a piece of independent work called a thesis. And in my time, one of the uh, institutions that was relatively new and interesting was the Tennessee Valley Authority, the TVA. It was a new thing that had been created. And they had an agricultural program. Uh, economists like agriculture because there's a lot of data you can move around. It's fun. And there's small units. It conforms to our theory a little bit. Uh, so I decided to do my senior thesis on the agricultural program of the TVA. They had a special program where they induced farmers to use better methods, and they gave them fertilizer and so on. So I was going to study that. And I got a fellowship or some money somewhere. And so I went to Washington, and I collected data. And I went to Knoxville, the headquarters, and I collected data. And then I went to a little farm in the hills. And for two weeks, I lived with a hillbilly couple who were part of a demonstration area of the TVAs. These people had zero formal education. But as I sat around with them in the evening and spent time and at least had the good sense not to ask questions uh, at the beginning, but just listen, I discovered they were very shrewd and very smart, even if not educated in any formal way. And I gradually 
saw the forms they were filling out and had even asked me to help a little bit. But it was clear to me that these sophisticated people were much smarter than the government bureaucracy because they had figured out what the government wanted to learn, what it would take to get the fertilizer that they wanted. <laughs> and so these were not just lies. They weren't lies, but they sort of within a broad band of reasonability, they filled out what they knew would bring them the fertilizer. And then it dawned on me that these numbers I collected in Washington, <laughs> they were sort of the summations of the things that people sent in. And it was a great lesson about data and the importance of being skeptical and asking. And I've done this all my life. Well, okay, that's an interesting number. Where did it come from? And if you don't do that, you're going to get in a lot of trouble. And, of course, you mentioned Princeton and the Nation Service. I gather you've had it in the World Service. My gosh. Uh, the nation is enough. Uh, but there is a kind of atmosphere around the place, at least there was and I guess still is, and perhaps it is especially visible to people who come over and spend time in the School of Public and International Affairs, uh, now the Woodrow Wilson School, that you somehow think it's a good idea and that if somebody ever asks you to do something that you think you might be able to do, you ought to do it. And as a matter of fact, as I have done these various uh, jobs that uh, Anne-Marie spoke about, uh, people often say, well, it was a great sacrifice to do that. I said, you're out of your mind. It's a tremendous opportunity. It's a tremendous privilege to serve your country, particularly in jobs where you can make a difference. And so I've always considered those uh, times really sort of high points of my career. So this is by way of saying, in an opportunity to speak here at Princeton, thank you, Princeton, for all that you've done for me. So now I'm going to talk a little bit about what's going on in the world. And since this is a university setting, rather than belabor uh, too much uh, the content of things. I want to talk about all this in the realm of ideas because I've always felt in my public career particularly, but any in private industry as well, that if you get the ideas right, then your tactical implementation of them is going to work out. If you get the ideas wrong, Almost no matter how brilliant your tactics are, you're, you have a hard time getting there. So it's very important to get the ideas right. So my first thought is that as a country, we have to keep reminding ourselves of what a wonderful world of, of opportunity it is that we happen to be living in with the knowledge that's available in this information and knowledge age, with the knowledge 
of what it takes to have economic development more or less understood much better. With the spread of that knowledge, with the spread of political openness, we see people in countries that have been condemned to poverty for generations, like China, India, beginning to get somewhere. And I think it's very possible that we can see a world that is good for us and good for people all over the place uh, out there. The opportunity is just immense. It's there for the taking. And somehow we have to get it across as a country, as the largest economy, as the most uh, important military force. We have to get it across to the world that there are these opportunities. We understand that. And what we're trying to do as a country is make it possible for everybody to take advantage of them. And our fight against terrorism is a fight on our behalf, but on behalf of everybody, to see that the terrorists don't take that opportunity away from us. So we've got to get that out front somehow. That should be our stance. Now then, when it comes to the war on terrorism, I've struggled with this problem for a long time. We had our share of it during the Reagan administration. I was a hawk on the subject, as the parlance goes. And even in 1983 and 1984, I was uh, pounding the table and saying, this is a big problem. It's different. We have to take action against it. Uh, not very many people agreed with me. Fortunately for me, Ronald Reagan agreed with me, but nobody else did. So we didn't get very far. We did a few things. In the 1990s, the problem emerged even more prominently. Uh, Osama bin Laden and the al-Qaeda regime were well known. We basically didn't do anything about it. So just not doing anything about terrorism doesn't work as a tactic. We have, in a sense, shown that. We have approached it to a very considerable degree as a law enforcement problem. Somebody commits a criminal act, like trying to blow up the World Trade Center. Some people are killed. We try to find who they are. We try them. And I read the other day that as our judicial process unfolded about a week ago, finally, the person who was judged to have been one of those responsible, the judge finally said, okay, that verdict stands 10 years. It doesn't work. If we worry about terrorism as something we have to prevent. So after 9-11, that was a riveting event for us, and President Bush interpreted it in such a way as he said, we now have declared war on terrorism. And I think people kind of agreed with that. 
And war is a different idea from law enforcement. If you're at war, you know you better defend yourself actively. And you also better be on the offense. And as the saying goes, the best defense is a good offense. That's what a war is about. And we also realize that states that harbor terrorists are as guilty as the terrorists, maybe more so. Terrorists don't exist in a vacuum. They have to have a place to train, to gather their resources. And when it comes to the use of sophisticated means of terror, you probably need the apparatus of a state to be able to produce those means and weaponize them. So states that harbor terrorists are at least as much of a menace, not just states that actively use terrorism, which there are some, but states that harbor terrorists are as guilty as the terrorists. <laughs> The next idea that seems to me to be very important here is that the name of the game is prevention. Particularly in an age where you have devastating weapons. I don't really like very much the phrase weapons of mass destruction because it seems to, it suggests that there are a lot of things that are sort of alike. They are alike in the sense that they do mass damage, but biological weapons, chemical weapons, nuclear weapons, other sort of unconventional techniques, uh, when it comes to addressing them and understanding them and figuring out what you're going to do about them, call for different kinds of thinking. But nevertheless, they all have this characteristic that they can do immense damage, so much damage that you must say to yourself, I don't want to wait around for San Francisco to be made uninhabitable until I do something about it. That's too late. I have to prevent that from happening in the first place. So you have to focus your thinking and your efforts on prevention. And then, finally, in this list of ideas that I wanted to bring to your attention before trying to apply them, uh, I want to call your attention to the Great Seal of our Republic. The Secretary of State is the custodian of the Great Seal, so I have looked at it and uh, done a little research about it. And the Great Seal, as its centerpiece, has an eagle. And in one talon, the eagle is holding olive branches, and in the other, arrows. At the end of World War II, President Truman saw a rendition in the White House of the Great Seal, and the eagle's head was turned toward the arrows. That's not in the official seal. But at any rate, he was offended by that. And he wrote an executive order, and he got the Congress to pass something or other that said, henceforward, the eagle will always look at the olive branch 
to show that the United States will always seek peace. But the eagle will also always hold on to the arrows, plural. Actually, there are 13 of them. Plural, to show that the United States understands that if you're going to be successful in seeking peace, you must be strong. And strength doesn't mean just economic strength, military strength, strength of will. But your military strength doesn't mean a thing if people are convinced you will never use it. It has to be usable. So that's the lesson of the great seal. And now what I'd like to do is take two case studies and apply some of these ideas. And one case study will be Iraq and the other North Korea. Notes are a little out of order here, I see, so I'll have to do something about that. Now, let me just say a word about post war Iraq, a little bit off the train of the contrast between Iraq and North Korea, but following the line of thinking that I developed. I think the first thing we need to have in mind as we address what should happen to Iraq now in Iraq is the first point that I made. The world is a world of opportunity, and we should be wanting to have come about in Iraq somehow or other a situation that helps the people of Iraq make themselves able to take advantage of these opportunities. And they do have a terrific base for doing it, as people by this time realize. It's obvious that our military have to provide initial security. They have to dig out these weapons and get rid of them. I'm encouraged by all the statements that are made that it should be our objective to get governance of Iraq into the hands of legitimately identified Iraqis as soon as possible. That doesn't mean we should rush into something that isn't legitimate, but we have to find a process that will identify those Iraqis. It's very tricky, in my opinion, because the structure, the constitutional structure that's designed will have a great deal to do with the outcome. One of my wife Charlotte's great friends is Senator Dianne Feinstein. She's a great pal of ours. And Back in the days when Trent Lott was the Republican leader and Dow was still a Democratic leader, she was lamenting to us one day. She said, you know you can take the GDP of those two states and their populations and you can put them into a corner of California and you won't even see them. 
And yet everybody's paying attention to those two guys all the time, and I can hardly get the floor. <laughs> so that's the way our structure is. Uh, and so how this structure is developed in Iraq is a very tricky thing to do, and it deserves a lot of thought, and particularly thought by people who really understand the history of the country. So I don't... I. I think it is uh, hard to do, but at any rate, we're addressing that. And uh, I, I hope and assume that we'll do that reasonably well. Then there is the question that some people don't seem to be talking about very much, but which I think deserves immense attention, and that has to do with oil. Because if you look at countries that are dominated by oil, that is, their economy almost overwhelmingly consists of the revenues from oil and what you do with those revenues, what tends to happen is that the money flows to the center. It is owned then by the people in the center. They politicize it. And then its uses are for all sorts of things that don't necessarily benefit the people in the country. So however this is handled, and I personally think that if the Iraqis are to get the most out of the resources they have, which from all accounts are immense, they would be well advised to privatize, that is to bring in the sophisticated oil companies that know how to explore and develop well, and which haven't been there for 25 years. Um, and, of course, they would pay big concessions, big money for concessions, and there would be royalty agreements and so on. So the people of Iraq would benefit from this. But however that is done, and I think that sh decision should not be made until you have a legitimate Iraqi government there, and then that government can make that kind of a decision. It's a big decision for a country. But however that's made, have to think about the way this money flows. And it does seem to me that we would do them all a service if we could establish right off the bat some sort of an institutional arrangement, whether it be a unit within the a newly formed Iraqi finance ministry or some separate agency, but at any rate, some place to which the oil money flows and from which it's dispersed, all totally transparent. Anybody can see how much money has gone in. Anybody can see where it went. And if you can do that, and if you can put up some standards or some ideas of what the priorities will be so you have a sense of accountability, did the money go to these places, then it seems to me you can avoid a lot of problems that uh, might otherwise arise. So there's lots to be said about the future of Iraq, and I don't presume here to try to cover it all, but I do call attention to this problem of how the oil wealth will be handled, because I think that if you don't do something along the lines that I suggested, it almost doesn't matter what institutional structure you put there. The wealth is so overwhelming it will just 
demolish what's ever there if you're not careful. Now let me turn to the question, what do we learn by looking at the Iraq versus North Korea problems in terms of ideas? You come to this question of when should force be used in your effort to prevent a terror attack on you. If you say our focus is on prevention, there are all sorts of things that we need to be doing and are doing to prevent these attacks that are not short of the use of force. On the other hand, there's always the very great likelihood that in one situation or another, force is going to be called for. Now, so that's the subject I want to work around. Now, a lot of people, particularly people who like the movies and the old westerns, their image of when you should do force is, there's the sheriff in the street, there's the outlaw, they're walking toward each other, <laughs> and the sheriff doesn't draw till the outlaw draws. But the sheriff is quicker. So the outlaw draws and the sheriff <laughs> gets him. <laughs> we do not want to be in that situation. Right? <laughs> that's not where that's not how we want to use force. We've got to be ahead of that game in some fashion. Now, I think it's a good idea to put it forward directly, as we have, that part of our prevention strategy will be the possibility of forceful preemption so that people understand that fact, and they have to factor that in to their thinking. We shouldn't obscure that. So we've done that. But, as I have said, and I keep repeating this because it's so important, you can't afford to receive the first hit in an age when these weapons are so destructive. What that means is that the idea of maintaining peace in Cold War terms by containment and deterrence is phasing out of the picture. I don't say it's totally irrelevant, but when you look at the kind of the sources of a possible terrorist attack, you can see how difficult it is to imagine exactly how containment and deterrence is really going to work in a way that makes you comfortable. So I think that you have to go beyond that and you have to say to yourself that the first attack is something that we do not want to sustain. And prevention before the fact is by far the best course. Now the administration has put forward the idea 
and some people find it a terrible idea. Personally, I find it very appealing. They've put forward the idea that one element of prevention is to construct an armed force that's so powerful that anyone can see that they can't challenge that armed force. That is a kind of deterrent uh, concept. That's not the end, but that's the beginning. And I think we can overdo it, but I don't think we have. And certainly that's a good idea in the whole notion of prevention. Now, if we let's take now these two countries, Iraq and North Korea. In the case of Iraq, we came to the end of the Gulf War. Whether we should have continued on a little what, couple of days longer, dealt with the Republican Guard, you can debate. I don't think it is at all debatable that it was a huge mistake not to negotiate a ceasefire in place. That's the beginning of any Diplomacy 101. And so probably you shouldn't have generals do the negotiating. They appeal to each other too much. You should have said, I'm not going to have my general negotiate with their general. You should have said, I'm going to have somebody from the political side of our coalition demand that somebody from the political side of their coalition come and engage in this act. And there will be a ceasefire in place, not just a ceasefire and you're not going to fire at us, but that your forces stay exactly where they are. Now, apparently in the discussions, the Iraqi general said to General Schwarzkopf, uh, well, General, you know, you're a general like me, and you've got to move our choppers around, right? And our forces, we have to be able to dispose of them, and uh, that was agreed to. The answer could easily have been, of course, I understand that, and we'll have a little military commission, and if you want to move a chopper from A to B, you come to the commission, you explain why, and tell us when you want to do it, and you do it, that, so you can move them, but under our control. Instead, there was no ceasefire in place, and when the people of Iraq rose up, they were brutally suppressed. They remember that. And we should remember that over the course of the years following that, 10 or so years, the UN resolution for force was suspended, not ended, suspended, while an effort was made to prevent the use of Saddam's known weapons through a process of declaration and inspection that they were being dealt with. Go back to the Great Seal. For a while, while force was there, strength was there, the process was working. We found a lot of weapons. We disposed of a lot of weapons. We know that we missed a lot. We know that when there were defectors, 
they told us about weapons that were existing in places that had been inspected and people went back and they found them. But then as the pressure went off, as the, as the strength receded, the inspection process became weaker and weaker. And by the time 1998 arrived, the inspectors were booted out of the country. So we saw the deterioration of strength lead to the deterioration of what you might call diplomacy. Then what happened? The issue emerged again. The United States started deploying large forces in the area. The UN Security Council seemed to have gotten energized. Resolution 1441 passed unanimously. And all of a sudden, the strength part was revived. And what happened? What happened was there started to be a response. But then, when the French made it clear that there were no circumstances under which they would vote, authorize the use of force, the Iraqis probably thought somehow the French then controlled what would happen and the diplomacy, the inspection process deteriorated into a concept of you've got to find the weapons, whereas the concept originally was it's up to the Iraqis to declare the weapons and the role of the inspectors is to say, aha, I see, now let's, let me see you destroy them. That was the concept. So in the interplay of strength and diplomacy, you can see how in the case of Iraq, we wound up in a situation where it was decided by a coalition of the willing, which the French described as was done from Vichy, France, as an Anglo-American coalition, uh, decided to take action, and that's what's happened. Now let's turn to North Korea, because I think, and I, but I would say that the most disheartening part of all of this is what it has done to the notion that the Security Council could be a way of bringing about peaceful resolutions of major issues. That has probably gone by the wayside because we're not going to subject ourselves to, or no one would, to the wishes of a country that apparently has a very different infrastructure than we do toward this issue. After all, it was France that supplied the nuclear reactor to Iraq. Why would Iraq want a nuclear reactor when it has all that oil? Is that hard to figure out? Why would France do that? And the Israelis took preemptive action against that reactor. The world 
tut-tutted them at the time. There's hardly anybody now who doesn't think that was a great thing to have done. But it is dismaying that we've had this long effort, hard effort, conscientious effort, to use the United Nations, and the United Nations failed. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be trying to use it and, and revive it in some fashion, figure out how to make it work better, uh, perhaps with the North Korea example, but it's a very instructive and it hits pretty deep. Now we have North Korea. Here is a rather different case because we find ourselves in the position of the sheriff on Main Street. And, but it's even worse in that uh, the outlaw may have some weapons that can be set off with a blink of an eye or something from some other direction. And so the idea of military preemptive action is uh, not very attractive. It's interesting that one country has said that the right thing to do is to preempt. That country is Japan. I'll come back to that in a minute. But in the case of North Korea, prevention has failed. The International Atomic Energy Group has been there. They've been thrown out. They failed to discover nuclear developments that were going on against the agreement that the North Koreans made. There have been sanctions. There has been diplomacy. There have been material inducements. Uh, I would, in a harsher frame of mind, call those material inducements uh, bribes. We were extorted. Uh, there have been greed understandings that were violated. Everything has failed. And so North Korea now has and produces nuclear weapons of mass destruction, probably among others. So we face a situation with very few options. The two main ones that people talk about, uh, neither one is, uh, is very desirable. One option is for us to go and negotiate with the North Koreans and be willing to make payments in return for their agreement, agreement not to do something or other. But we know that they violate their agreement, so the agreement is not worth paying for. But it maybe it buys you some time. That's, that's what people want us to go do. And the administration has said, well, Aside from not willing, not being wanting to pay extortion, we also think the record is it doesn't work because they continue to do things anyway. So the other option is a military strike, but you have to have in your mind North Korea has artillery, massive artillery, that could probably uh, do immense damage to Seoul and they do have nuclear weapons. They have ballistic missiles. They demonstrated that by lobbing them over Japan. Incidentally, while I don't put myself forward as an expert on rocketry, if you can produce a ballistic missile 
that will go 200 miles, you can produce a ballistic missile that will go 2,000 miles. The trick is the initial, and extending its range is not so difficult. What is very difficult is to get it to do, like our ballistic missiles could do, is hit a dime somewhere. But if all you're interested in doing is hitting, say, the greater Princeton area or something, you can manage that uh, if you don't worry too much about precision. So they have those uh, problems. And so the military option is full of difficulties. And so what should we do? Well, I think it's time for fresh thinking on this subject. So I'm going to make a proposal to you that is outrageous, unacceptable, won't work, and so on. But I want to call your attention to the fact that it makes a huge difference what your mental set is as to what you think of and what you notice. If somebody who is dear to you gets a disease you never heard of, it turns out that practically any magazine you pick up has got something about that in it. And you notice it. But you never noticed it before. It was there. You never noticed it. Why didn't you notice it? Because it just wasn't on your mind. So I think the, the way you arrange your thinking can have an impact on what you think of and what you do. Our thinking with North Korea is conditioned by 50 years or so of tense stalemate. And while it's been undesirable, nevertheless, it's been, I won't say peaceful, because the North Koreans have terrorized the South, wiped out half their cabinet, shot down a South Korean airliner, that's be other than the one the Soviets shot down. Uh, they've done a lot of pretty unacceptable things. But nevertheless, there hasn't been any big outbreak of war. So our mind is sort of conditioned, and there's a little bit of the sense that what we need to do is somehow through uh, diplomatic magic, maybe by agreeing to extortion payments or something, get the situation back to where it was. But I don't think you can do that. It's not stable. Here's why. North Korea is a country of some 23 million people. And I understand that in the last four or five years, perhaps as many as two million people have died of starvation. There cannot be many regimes in history that survive that sort of a record of gross incompetence. Obviously, they do it through intense, repressive activities. Their GDP is around half what it was before the Soviet subvention stopped. Their foreign trade is a third of what it was. Their G South Korea's GDP is around 25 times North Korea's. These are two countries with people with the same genes, started out almost the same, 
on the whole, people thought the resource base and so on in North Korea was stronger than South Korea, but anyway, let's say they were about the same. And now, here is the situation. Refugees are wanting desperately to get out of North Korea. So I don't think sort of going back to the way it was 10 years ago or 25 years ago or something, it's not an option because the regime it is inherently unstable. So my suggestion is that you take a deep breath and say, we're shifting gears. We think it's time to be for a unifying, if not unified, Korea. That's the objective of our policy. Now, how do we get there? Not so easy. What about China? China seems to be rather diffident about all of this. And it's one of the countries that's saying to us, you do it. But China, of course, has immense, immense contacts with North Korea. It has the greatest leverage of any country, perhaps Japan being next, more than we have. So I think one has to point the Chinese to this Japanese statement that they think it's time to preempt North Korea's possible action. They can't do that now, can they? They don't have nuclear weapons on ballistic missiles. How long, China, do you think it would take Japan to acquire that capability like that? They put satellites up. They have fissile material. They're very smart. They have a big industrial base. If they're driven to it, they can very easily rearm themselves and rearm themselves in an awesome way. My judgment, knowing the Japanese somewhat, is that they really don't want to. But the history of Japan and the Koreas is such that if they see a determined North Korea with ballistic missiles that have dem demonstrably able to hit Japan with nuclear warheads on them, that's serious business. And yes, they have the U.S. nuclear umbrella, but you like to be able, under those circumstances where your basic security is at stake, to have more control over your own destiny. So probably Japanese leaders today wouldn't talk about this openly, but I am certain that they talk about it among themselves. And when they say they think preemption is something that should be on the table, and they might do it, they're not going to be able to do it with what they now have. So to China, that should be very persuasive. I remember a time with Mr. Gorbachev, who I got to be a pretty good friend with. After he had left office, I was out of office, he came to visit Stanford, where we have a home. And he and I were sitting around in our backyard. And I said to him, well, you, when you took office, the Cold War was pretty frigid. And when you left office, it was over. So what do you think the turning point was? And he said without a second's hesitation, 
He said, Reykjavik. I said, why Reykjavik? He said, because for the first time, the two leaders sat by themselves for an extended period and talked about all of the important issues. That was a turning point. And of course, I remember that meeting very well because there's this little room in the room in Iceland called Hobby House. There's a little room we had, tiny room. So there's Gorbachev, President Reagan, Shevardnadze, my counterpart, and me and our note taker and, and uh, translators. That's all there was in the room. And we did. We had a, a real exchange and a lot of headway was made. A lot of headway was made. So he said, well, all right, I can ask you the same question. What do you think? I said, I think the turning point was when we deployed ballistic missiles in Germany that you thought could hit Moscow. You see, our ambassador, Jack Macklock, is here, uh, who was very much a part of all of this period. But I think if there's one thing the Russians are allergic to, the Soviets, the Russians, it's the idea that Germany could destroy Moscow. They are really <laughs> allergic to that. And when you drive from the airport in Moscow into the center of the city, you see this monstrous uh, sculpture, I guess you'd call it, that marks where the Germans got to in World War II. They remind themselves of that all the time. So they're allergic to that. By the same token, given the history, if there's one thing the Chinese must be allergic to, it's a rearmed militaristic Japan. So they should want to avoid it. I think it's a very powerful talking point. Now, if you get China persuaded, and believe me, you can go and talk. There wouldn't be any announcement or whatever. That's not the way the Chinese do. But if you had the right kind of an impact, they quietly would be able to go do something. It was interesting to notice that recently the Chinese, for I think a week or something like that, cut off um, supplies of energy, oil, I guess, just to remind the North Koreans that they could do that. So they're getting into the picture. The Japanese also, of course, have a lot of leverage. So if we say uh, who, who could benefit from a unifying Korea, well, actually, China can. China, after all, by now, has a much richer relationship with South Korea than it does with North Korea. Why? Because there's a real economy there that they can trade with. A more peaceful situation would be benign for everyone. And certainly the people of North Korea are avid to be free of this repressive regime they're in, which is starving them. I remember, Jack, how what an impact it made when I believe the Hungarians were willing to receive refugees from East Germany. And we started to see that swell, and, and it was kind of demonstrable. You didn't have to have an argument. There they were. They voted with their feet. And so I think we should be encouraging South Korea. We should be encouraging China. Don't be so 
stiff with these refugees. And then somehow you've got to do something about Kim Jong-il. I don't know what the answer is to that. But I would think uh, either the Russians or the Chinese might be able to do some quiet persuasion and uh, offer him a villa for a life or something somewhere. Uh, but I'm not, I'm not saying I have the answers here. I'm saying to you, we are in a, between a rock and a hard place with North Korea. And the way to get out of that is to sort of do some new thinking. And once you do that, then maybe you'll think of some things that are different from now. So while we were forced, as I see it, to use force, enforced prevention with Iraq, well, with Iran, certainly we ought to be trying to encourage the politics there to run their course. And with Korea, I think we have to look to some sort of option as I have outlined for you. But at any rate, all of these things are by way of coming back to this notion of how important the ideas are, because if you get them somewhere near right, you have the best chance of getting somewhere. So once again, finally, I come back to this notion of how important it is for us to realize ourselves and let other people see what a world of opportunity there is out there that everyone can benefit from. And the policy of the United States is to stand for that opportunity, not just for ourselves, but for everybody. And we simply have to fight terror so that terrorists don't take that opportunity away from us. Thank you. Secretary Schultz has said he will take questions. I just have to say, from uh, my point of view, I will not ask the first question, but uh, at a time when uh, we seem to be hearing policy options, one that is worse than the other, uh, it is quite extraordinary to at least have heard uh, a possible uh, solution that does not involve the destruction of downtown Seoul uh, or possibly a nuclear weapon either in Japan uh, or here. But I want to just highlight what I said about scholarship uh, government service and the private sector. You just heard an account that married big ideas with statescraft and the, in, the right incentives, which I think reflect uh, all three. So the floor is open. Yes. Um, the other day I heard one of the Iraqis say, um, on the ground you have to distinguish between honest people and bots. And uh, that made me think that, well, Syria has a Baptist government up there. Um, in light of, of that fact, uh, even though Syria has uh, diplomatic recognition, but 
Should we just march in and destroy that <laughs> Not right now. <laughs> no, I think that we now need to use the demonstrated fact that if forced to, we will take action as a way of increasing the strength and thrust of our diplomacy. And so Syria should be alert to that. And at least as I would interpret his remarks, Secretary Rumsfeld has been reminding him of that. And it is an interesting fact that Syria, which has made some uh, unfriendly noises and apparently done some unfriendly things, has also uh, been uh, cautioning Hezbollah to rev itself down a little bit. So there are some possible interactions here. And of course, the optimistic potential set of developments is that somehow Syria might uh, settle itself down a little bit and realize that being the conduit for terrorist financing from Iran through Syria to Lebanon to the Hezbollah with terrorism in Israel is a um, something that we might back off from. And so that I think we should be playing that game, but using the fact that uh, you know, it's not impossible that you could be in the crosshairs. If you're going back to the ideas that I mentioned at the beginning, it's a war. And states that harbor terrorists is as guilty as the terrorists. Well, any state, the whole idea of that is to make states that are harboring terrorists a little uncomfortable. And to say to them, maybe you better stop. You can have a good life out there. There are all these opportunities. And we're willing to work with you on these opportunities. But terrorism, no way. That's the threat to taking advantage of these opportunities. So you can see at least the potential if we work it skillfully and right and we have a little luck of some shift of gears in Iran, some shift of gears in Syria. It would be a great thing if we could get Syria out of Lebanon as a little country that has so much appearance that people are so smart and able. And uh, I was negotiating an agreement once between Lebanon and Israel, and it involved some economic interactions. And I said, aren't you a little afraid that the Israelis will outsmart you on uh, commercial relations? They laughed. They said, oh, just let, them, let us at them. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, we understand the bazaar. And, uh, <laughs> So there could be a lot of good things happen, but it's a long ways from making that happen. Uh, Professor Davis, who is one of our Japan experts. Thank you so much for a really inspirational lecture. And it's very encouraging to hear uh, foreign policy of being with your stature, putting forward the idea we need to think outside the box towards the Korean Peninsula. And when we start talking about how can we achieve unification, I completely agree with you. And my question, though, is whether the best way to achieve this goal is to raise the old fears between China and Japan. One of the problems in East Asia is 
the role of peer, and even when Japan has no intention to ever invade China again, China desperately fears this, and whether <coughs> the United States is going to be constructive by raising that fear, by throwing out a red herring, when the Japanese government is not planning to build nuclear weapons at this point, or there was one minister who said they might consider a preemptive strike under some possible scenario, and the government clearly backed away from this. Public opinion is incredibly passionate. The senior leadership of the LDP very much feels that North Korea wants an economic package, not an attack. And so given this real question about whether Japan actually wants to build a nuclear program or wants to preempt, should the United States deliberately play up this scenario to China? And would there be other ways for the United States to encourage China to support the unification of Korea without having sort of reinforcing the historical fears? I don't think it's a red herring. I think if it sinks in in Japan that here's North Korea and nobody seems to be able to do anything with them and it has ballistic missiles and nuclear warheads which North Korea has flamboyantly demonstrated can fly over Japan. I've done that. Uh, that it's uh, very hard. If you were the prime minister and you're a responsible person and you have to think about the security of your country, uh, you, you have to weigh these things. And I know that uh, they don't say anything much in public. And I don't know what they say to you in private, but I know what they say to me. Uh, they're worried. And I don't think we need to go beating on the Chinese. The Chinese, nobody ever accused the Chinese of being stupid. They are very smart. And you don't have to draw pictures for them. They get it. And, and as I said by mentioning this uh, cutoff of energy supplies, this little blip, maybe they've got it already. Uh, but I think it would be helpful if we can get an idea in play that's different from going back to tense stalemate. And as I said, I really don't think that's possible because of the inherent instability in North Korea. We have time for one last question. Uh, yes, Professor Sigmund. Paul Sigmund. Uh, um, I want to follow up with your discussion of uh, preemption and of ideas. The idea of preemption uh, is a new idea in a way, um, and you seem to endorse it. Um, I do endorse it. Exactly. And, and uh, that idea when it was trotted out first in the early 90s, uh, you know, by Wolfowitz and others. No, uh, no, it preceded. Well, it has a long history. Okay. in. Uh, but let me call your attention, <laughs> since I see you're nervous about it. And uh, <laughs> I'm nervous about it. But uh, here we were in the Reagan administration. Here was a regime in a little island called Grenada that was a murderous regime, believe me. There was no doubt about it. And it was Cuban-controlled, no doubt about it. On that island, for reasons that are beyond me, there were some 300 Americans going to a school, a medical school, so-called. 
blows your mind. But anyway, they were there. <laughs> and so we said to the government, such as it was of Grenada, we've got to, we'd like to get these Americans off your island, and we'd like to fly a couple of planes in and take them off. And they said, no way. We said, well, then maybe we could bring a ship into the harbor and take them off. They said, no way. So we said, well, there is a problem waiting to happen. Hostages in the hands of a murderous, Cuban-dominated, read, Soviet-dominated regime. And so we acted preemptively to prevent that from happening. And it was successful. I might say from the standpoint of the person, and, and this was something I'll say on behalf of the State Department, uh, we, we pushed this very hard. I might say a somewhat over-reluctant Defense Department uh, with Reagan very much in favor of what we were doing. Uh, but it became something of great use to us diplomatically because it, it did say to the world that contrary to the conventional wisdom that having been burned so badly in Vietnam, the United States we have all these forces, but we would never use them. It showed that we would use them. And it made a big, it was a shot heard around the world, and not a big shot, but a shot. So that was an example of preemption. And uh, there has been a lot of it over the years, but uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's nerve wracking. And I think any time a president is confronted with a choice of accepting something that's really very undesirable or trying to preempt it, it's a hard decision. It's what I saw this, the columnist Tom Friedman, who's a very interesting fellow, calls a war of choice. Well, I don't think it is a war of choice. You don't have a choice, but it's a hard decision for a president to make. But I say, that's what we're paying them for, to make those decisions. I'm, there's not going to be, there, you can finish the question, but there won't be time for an answer. Okay, there, there have been two recent criticisms of the doctrine of the preemption. One on this campus yesterday by Professor of International Law from Oxford that said, this is a very dangerous doctrine, it can be adopted by anybody, um, and, uh, uh, and in fact, the way it seems to be uh, uh, worded is, the United States has a right of preemption, but, but no one else does. A second criticism is one that Zbigniew Brzezinski put on, the, on television, uh, spoke on television about two months ago, where he said, well, we, do in fact, we did in fact have a doctrine of preemption. We were prepared uh, to actually attack the Russians if they were, if it was clear they were you know, imminently, they were going to attack us. Well, we already had one. But we never talked about it. <laughs> and the problem is that this has now become a kind of public doctrine. How would you respond to those two criticisms? Well, I think... On the second one, you can argue that, but I believe <clears throat> there's a lot to be said for making it public so that people are on notice, and it isn't a surprise. Because if they're on notice and you've demonstrated the willpower, then they take it seriously, and then the message of the Great Seal can operate, and you can use, your diplomacy has a lot more strength behind it. I've always felt diplomacy without strength is you're nowhere. 
nobody pay attention to you. On the other hand, just strength, without the diplomacy that gives legitimacy to the strength, is not going to uh, get you very far either. So you've got to work these things together. And I recognize how uh, nervous people are about the idea of the ultimate preventive step, namely the use of force. But it seems to me there are circumstances, as I've tried to argue here, where the possibility of damage is so immense that you can't wait until you've been hit before you act if you have clear evidence of the very real possibility of it happening. Secretary Schultz, I'm about to turn the podium back to Professor George to talk about what's going to happen this afternoon. But you started your, your remarks uh, with reflections on how Princeton has served you well. Uh, you have served Princeton well and your country well. I have to say you've also done uh, the best thing one can do in a public lecture at a university, which is to challenge us all to think, to think hard, and to think fresh. Thank you. Yes, thank you indeed very much, uh, Secretary Schultz, and thank you, uh, Dean Slaughter. Uh, we're grateful to Dean Slaughter for arranging uh, this afternoon's uh, lecture and for co-sponsoring it with the James Madison program and for coming here personally to introduce Secretary Schultz. We will be reconvening the conference on uh, national sovereignty and international relations at 2.30 this afternoon uh, for a keynote address by Dr. Ruth Wedgwood of Johns Hopkins University. Let me uh, take this moment, though, uh, not only to um, advertise the ongoing conference on national sovereignty and international relations, but two more very important uh, upcoming events, events next week sponsored by the James Madison program. Uh, next week will mark the 40th anniversary of the letter from the Birmingham jail by the Reverend Martin Luther uh, King, uh, a very important contribution, one of the most important contributions by an American to the great tradition of political thought, Dr. King's reflections on the relationship between positive law and natural law and between law and uh, justice. We've convened a very distinguished panel, uh, which will meet at 12 noon on Monday, April 14th, in the Whig uh, Hall Senate Chamber. That's open to the public. Everyone is invited. And I'm delighted to say that in addition to uh, our panel, uh, there will be a performance uh, by the uh, school choir of the Martin Luther King Jr. Middle School in Trenton. So that's on uh, Monday uh, at 12 noon, Whig Hall uh, Senate Chamber. Monday evening, the very same day, at 8 o'clock in the evening, we have a, professor, a uh, lecture by Professor Jean Bethke Elstein of the uh, University of Chicago on the topic International Justice and American Power. So uh, Professor Elstein will really be continuing the deliberations that we have going on this weekend uh, on uh, uh, international relations with her lecture on uh, international politics, uh, international justice, and American power. Again, it's at 8 p.m., Robertson Hall, uh, that's the Woodrow Wilson School, Bowl 2. 8 p.m., Robertson Hall, Bowl 2, Jean Bethy Elstein. And we will, as I say, reconvene this conference at 2.30. Thank you again, Secretary of State Schultz.